What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes Podcast. I am your host, Corey Wong. Today on the podcast, we have Tosin Abasi from the band Animals as Leaders. Now, I got hip to Tosin because somebody said, dude, check out this guy. He's doing this insane stuff I have never heard before on the instrument. And of course, like, oh yeah, how many times have you heard that? Press play on the video. Whoa, who is this cat? Insane player. And to me, what feels like a total innovator of not just heavy music and extended range guitars. A lot of people lump him in. Oh, one of the greatest extended range guitar players of our generation. It's like, no, he's just one of the greatest guitar players of our generation. How about that? And I really feel like he's changing the game and upping the level of the instrument for generations to come. He's got his own guitar company. He's got an insane band who's dedicated his life to the study of the craft and the artistry of the guitar. So I have all kinds of questions for him. Let's not waste any more time. Tosin Abbas. This season of the Wong Notes podcast is sponsored by Neural DSP. All Wong Notes listeners get 30% off with the voucher code WONG. Neural DSP creates industry-leading guitar and bass plugins. The range includes signature plugins from some of the best modern guitarists, such as Corey Wong, Pliny, Adam Nolly Getgood, and Tozen Abasi. The archetype Corey Wong gives you everything from crystal clear tones to edge of breakup blues tones, whereas the 14 Amp series delivers all the crushing modern metal tones you could possibly need. And that Nameless is my favorite Marshall amp ever. There's a plug-in here for every type of player, and you can get a 14-day free trial for every single one of them without even entering your credit card details. Find me another company doing that. Once you've found the ones you like, you get that 30% off your purchase by entering the code WONG at checkout. Tozen, thanks so much for being with us. We are brethren in the Neural DSP family. True, true. And actually, your plugin is the first Neural DSP plugin that I ever tried after Doug hit me up and said, hey, we're thinking about doing this archetype. We want to do something clean with you. Check out these other ones. See if you think we did a good job. And if you like us, we'll work together. And they crushed it. Your plugin sounds sick. (laughs) Dude, thank you. Yeah, I was um, blown away by how accurately they... I literally shipped them my head and my, you know, my signal chain that was like foundational to my sound. I mean, I've literally plugged in my pedal board into an interface and then loaded the plugin and done an AB. And it's like, it's the same thing. It's kind of crazy. It's insane. They have some serious programming chops over there. They do. And I'm so happy you made one because yours is crazy good. Because the high gain stuff and even really pristine cleans, I feel... Like they obviously were able to do that, but you've got certain tones that are just like, I only played your plugin once and I was like, how am I playing through a com- like a computer right now? It, it has such a, yeah. I think you, you killed it with that one. I'm really happy it's part of the offerings because it, it stands apart in this way that's like super organic and real. And it's like, I don't know. I think, I think it was a killer job. Thanks, man. Well, those guys, like we're saying, those guys are crushing. I don't know what they're doing, but they are doing something right. We'll have to figure out how much of the AI machine learning thing that they're, because you know that's part of how they're modeling, right? They're kind of, yeah. so if you find out some of that scientific stuff, <laughs> let me know. What I want them to not be good enough to do is actually be able to model you and I as human beings, as players. And there's just like, here's a song that's in the key of E at 120 BPM. What would Corey Wong do? Boom. And then all of a sudden it's just, exactly what I, as long as they can't figure that out, I think we're okay. Well, dude, I feel like, unfortunately, it's only a matter of time because they've got, <laughs> they can generate speech, right? They have these yeah. AIs that are like generative and then they also can like, you know, deep fakes, they can take data sets of your facial expressions and over time they can just model you saying things you never said, right? I've seen those videos and that is scary. So how far removed is that from feeding in every album you've played on, a bunch of live stuff, they feed it all in. I feel like we're one step away from the Corey Wong, the actual Corey Wong plugin. <laughs> like, where you, like literally. 
Just <laughs> cut me in. Cut me in on the royalties and I'm fine. Yeah. As long as they cut me in, that's great. Yeah. It's going to happen. I don't have to warm up. I don't have to actually have a really good day. It just gives me a good day every day. It's the best Corey Wong all the time. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to talk a little bit about your playing because you have such a unique playing style and you do stuff on the instrument that I've never seen before and that I just straight up cannot do. I watched some videos of yours, selective picking. Yeah, I'm sure there's other cats that know more about this, but for me, this was the first time I'd ever seen it. And I looked in, I watched videos. I was thinking, is this like half Chapman stick, half picking, half sweeping, half tapping? What is going on? Explain to me what selective picking is. Just give me the 101 into the 202. Okay, okay. Yeah, so selective picking is basically a lot of the mechanics from like thumping or slap guitar. Yeah. But with a pick instead of with your thumb. Do you slap on the guitar at all? Yeah. And I play a lot of slap bass. Okay. So I take some of that technique. I'm like Lewis Johnson style slap. That's that kind of school of slap. Okay. So, you know, when you're slapping, you're building phrases, but sometimes the phrase is divided between your left and right hand. So yes, maybe you hammer on and you do two hits or some combination of left and hand, left and right hand motions. Yep. Selective picking is retaining that independence between the left and right hand but instead of slapping you're using the pick in a most straightforward manner if i wanted to produce a group of three notes i could hammer on the first note hammer on from nowhere and then down and upstroke for two and three so you have one two three yeah right? so hammer on down up hammer on down up and now yep. there's a few reasons why this is weird um one is producing a hammer on from nowhere with you know sufficient volume and and um, so your guitars have to be set up for that type of thing. So I have like kind of ridiculously low action, but it allows me to hammer on from nowhere. And then the other tricky thing is we've learned to play guitar by synchronizing our left and right hands. So for alternate picking single note lines or strumming or whatever, you're always wanting the things to occur at the same time. Uh, mm -hmm. So this actually forces you to detach say the beginning of a group of notes, you almost have to think just left hand first and then right hand comes in. And sometimes that's a very you know dense note grouping. So you start slow with this and you have to realize that it will be a little awkward because you're used to synchronizing your hands. Yeah. But I'm happy you brought up Chapman stick because by giving your left hand full independence to produce notes, you can go for intervallic link leaps that would be a lot harder to like string skip with alternate picking and stuff like that. Totally. I kind of have really gotten into the timbre of like palm muting it with like a compressed clean tone. Mm -hmm. And it almost has like a, like a kalimba thumb piano sort of sound to it. Yeah. When you plug in arpeggios that are like, you know, dense sort of note groupings, you get a very cool muted stringed instrument sound that just sounds fresh to me, you know? So that's essentially a selective picking. I, I got to give credit to like Reggie Wooten, Victor Wooten, and my friend Evan Brewer, who studied with those guys. And he showed me that years ago. It just took me a long time to actually like plug in my own harmony and rhythms and get the, the physical facility down. Yeah. But if you, if you watch Vic build his thump lines, oftentimes he is building them through independent left and right hand, you know, contributions. Yeah. Put a pick in place of his thumb, you basically have selective picking. Okay. Man, when I first saw that improv Amazing Grace from Live at the Quick of Victor Wu and that, yeah, that's a great example of that where you see so much of the left and right yeah. that in, a, in a unique way. But I, I, I see that lineage. I didn't even think of making that connection. I've seen Reggie play before too. Uh, your, yours is in, a, is in a unique way because you're creating line like pianistic lines sometimes or lead lines melodic phrases in a really cool way thanks yeah i um i like a lot of electronic music and i like synth arps and step sequencers mm. and, and then as a like a shred guitar kid arpeggios were always stimulating and yeah. so when i hear a synth do it it had such conspicuous like order to it the yeah. way that it would cycle and I find it a lot easier to to hammer that stuff on than it would be to like yeah more John Petrucci it like all over the place and so uh, some of this was a bit of a like a shortcut to getting sure. a sound that I wanted you know that's cool that makes a lot of sense too with the synth arps 
So you said you're a shred kid. Did you grow up playing traditional six-string guitar in the shed practicing shred guitar? The very beginning, it was like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and like Soundgarden and yeah. Alice in Chains. I re- this is pre-internet, and this is when like MTV was like, between the radio and MTV, this is how you heard music. Yes. Unless, you know, I mean, unless your parents had a crazy record collection or you had an older brother or something like that, you're just at the subject of heavy rotation, like, you know, like, yeah. so I was only exposed to bar chords and the occasional, like, solo in a pop song, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then um, my older brother played drums and he brought home a Modern Drummer Festival VHS and it had... Uh, Mike Portnoy playing with uh, Jordan Rudis, I think. And yeah. then we like reverse engineered. It's like, this guy's in a band called Dream Theater. And then we look up Dream Theater and the guitar playing's like crazy. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, what is this? And that just like snowballed into Ingve Malmsteen and Steve Vai and Joe Satriani and Frank and Bali and Greg Howe and Paul Gilbert. So I would buy these hot lick videos, these instructional videos. Oh yeah. And I would just like, that's the, that's when I really started like doing metronome based practice, like with the goal of like precision and speed, you know, mm-hmm. I kind of obsessed over that for quite a few years. And so it's just locked into how I, how I approach the guitar now. Yeah. I've seen a lot of videos of you practicing. It seems like you're constantly working on maintaining and growing, not just your artistry, but your physical the athletic side of guitar playing. And that's where I want to go with this question is I don't see enough people drawing the parallel between extremely technical guitar playing and just the athleticism that it actually is, the physical feats that sometimes it takes. It's not just sitting down and playing guitar. You can't just look at it that. There, there's, a, there's a huge physical element to that. It seems like when I'm watching you play, you have a pretty heavy awareness of the physical side of things. Yeah, it it is it is physical because like fast twist fast twitch muscles and basically for me speed is a deteriorating skill. If I don't like kind of have a bit of a regiment, I will actually become slower and unable to execute the stuff. So it is physical. There are some guys I know who like they don't even have to warm up and they get on the guitar and they're just like blazing fast and like I'm not one of those guys. Like I actually yeah. have to like work into it. It's funny you're asking about the physicality of it because like I noticed that like I hit a barrier with how fast I can alternate pick. I had the John Petrucci rock discipline video and I was trying to do the chromatic stuff as fast as he could. And for whatever reason, the way I learned to alternate pick, I just hit a wall. There's like yeah. a definitive 190 BPM wall that I just cannot cross. So then I started to seek out players who looked like they were achieving speed, but with less effort. So, mm. you know, and if it's Holdsworth and Legato or Frank and Bali and economy picking, I just started to be like envious of these guys who didn't look like uh, they were doing it the most direct way. They found this like elegant shortcut to producing a lot of fluid speed, you know? And so yeah. um, I kind of started to like, take my technique in the in the direction of economy picking and you know the selective picking stuff is essentially legato it's essentially muted legato right so mm-hmm. i guess the physicality thing i know i know where i can't pass a barrier and then i will find a, a technical approach to get around that actual sure. barrier yeah so for you it wasn't all right i'm going to find some new technique and alternate pick faster than 190 it was i'm going to fa- find an alternate technique so that way it's more efficient for me to do it. Yeah. I mean, you know, if I was Rusty Cooley or, you know, Steven Toronto or any of these guys, like they're, they're dudes who are just, their right hands are just weapons and they're dying. Yeah. It's like, but I actually am not one of those guys. And in a way it's kind of worked out for me because it's forced me to try to make up for that in other ways, you know? Sure. So you mentioned fast twitch muscle, and I, I know plenty of those cats that, whether it be drummers, bass players, on any instrument, there's some people that can just sit down and just blaze mm. faster than I'll ever be able to blaze in my entire life, and they don't have to warm up to do it. 
I'm similar where I have to warm up. I have to maintain. I have to keep on it. Otherwise, I, I, like you're saying, you lose it. How do you look at development of fast twitch muscle? And there's some people listening that probably have no idea what that even is. So can you talk a little bit about that, what that is and what your journey has been to develop any of that technique? Essentially, you would start slow with the metronome and you would basically ingrain that movement as cleanly and uniformly as possible. And then you increase speed, but never to the point where your technique degrades. You continue to do that and you you increase speed in that stepwise uh, sort of approach. I mean, the fast twitch thing, I think I I, I don't want to BS. I'm not like a, you know, physio, physio, you know, sort of like guy. But kinesiologist. Kinesiologist or whatever the study of like the, you know, skeletal muscular system is, but I think there are uh, categories of, of muscle fibers and the smaller ones that rapidly respond are different than the large groups that do like larger eccentric and concentric motion. And so the fast twitch is stuff like typing or even, um, I even think something like sprinting might be in the same category, although that is multiple muscle groups and larger muscles. But mm-hmm. I think obviously when you're playing on the fingerboard or utilizing a pick, you're utilizing these small muscles in your forearm and in your hand. And so I never was thinking consciously about my muscles. I only thought about alleviating tension because mm. I found even through teaching guitar, when you are showing someone how to play like a G7 chord in the open position, sometimes having their pinky go to the third fret on the high E string is as if they, it's like they're putting all this tension into their hand and their finger because the the movement isn't isn't ingrained yet, and so there's yeah. all this effort that is unnecessary, but let, nonetheless is present. So when it came to like fast twist muscle development with alternate picking, I tried to um, not tense any muscles that weren't central to the movement I was doing. So I remember in the Bertrucci video, he's just like really thinking from the wrist down, and now a lot of guys would almost pick from they would tense their entire arm and move from the elbow. Yeah, I've seen fast results that way, but I think those are, that's a lot of effort to move your forearm as opposed to if you could just move your wrist. And I, if you watch Holdsworth closely, he would pivot from the actual the knuckles in his like in his thumb. You know, mm. I didn't really get this granular. There's a there's a series called Cracking the Code, and this guy gets granular. He talks about exit motion and all all this. Have you seen that stuff? Troy Grady, that's okay. insane. He's so good. I actually just got hip to him. He's okay. so, I, I've been starting to watch all of his videos. It's incredible. It is incredible. And I don't think there's been anything like it thus far. Yeah. But I mean, look, dude, all the, the, the strumming stuff you do at that, that speed, I mean, to me, that's in the same vein. But instead of targeting one note, you're doing the, the range of motion is actually a lot wider. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, how did you, did you just go for what you were hearing on records and just basically you're just playing along or were you kind of more regimented with developing that type of right-hand speed? My right-hand technique developed the same way that I developed my drumming technique. Now, I'm not really a drummer anymore, but I did drumline and drum corps in high school and just out of high school. So it was a lot of that marching percussion, that school of developing technique and form. And it was mostly from listening to albums. Okay, how do I get this sort of thing? But the weird thing about, for me... I actually have a faster speed on the larger sweep than I do on a single note sweep. So I can go all the way across the strings, but to do that on one string or to do it as a, you know, just a, I can't do it quite as fast as if I'm actually going across all the strings. So for whatever reason, I'm really loose and I can do the, sweep across all the strings super fast, but I lose about 15 BPM when I go single note. Uh. And I think it just has to do with some of that smaller range of motion and the fact that I'm truly left-handed. You're left-handed. I'm left-handed. So my right hand doesn't have years of writing with a pencil Uh. doing that small motion. Right. So I think there's something to do with that. Actually, I started brushing my teeth with my right hand. Sounds weird. But I started brushing my teeth with my right hand, and it works some of those small muscles in a similar way of the small motion picking. And I, it sounds crazy, but I, I feel like I have more muscular control down there. That's cool. Yeah. 
do you think with your right hand when you're doing the the larger range of motion are you throwing your hand in a way are you like actually utilizing um like it reminds me of rasciato like uh what flamenco players do yeah like they're flicking they're kind of flicking their whole hand is that kind of how you're doing it yeah i mean i know it's kind of disgusting looking at it but i have the open fingers thing and you know it's it's like this floppy hand that a lot of it is that just the the twist of a wrist like opening a doorknob Mm -hmm. but then it is some of that flicking like if i have water on my hand flicking it off my hand sort of thing yeah i think that's why you're getting different levels of speed because you're kind of doing it differently yeah uh, yeah yeah it's funny did you so did you ever feel like you wanted to go beyond so so say you heard some funk records with some killer rhythm guitar players were you ever like okay that's cool but i'm gonna like go even denser note groupings or or even faster or for you was it just like i wanted to groove and sometimes i wanted to be these dense groupings and that's fine as long as it sounds crisp and clean i'm good i'm more about the the accuracy of the the attack mm. And for me, it's that articulation that matters more to me. Rather than the the super fast of it. I haven't listened to anything and thought, oh man, I want to crank that up 60 BPM and and whatever. Because for me, it's not... I think Guitar Olympics is really fun, but Uh I haven't necessarily heard something and thought, oh man, I want to crank the subdivision double on that. Yeah. You know, my my taste... And everybody's taste is different, of course. So my taste isn't always, I got to be playing a lot of subdivision. Although I do play a lot of subdivision, it's not always present. I haven't necessarily found a technical barrier in my rhythm playing just because my taste hasn't asked me to go there yet. Yeah. So I actually have more technical facility than where my ears want to go, which I think is a good place to have. So that way, when my ears do tell me, let's go, my hands can just follow suit and I'm there. Yeah, I think you've inadvertently kind of you've kind of inadvertently explained why sometimes being faster than you need to be can be useful because it, sure. it, it means that even though you're not ever going to really perform that fast, there are time, it's nice to have that headroom on your technique. So if you do have to just pull something out, you're not like redlining your ability. To, yeah, you know what I mean. At least not always redlining it. Yeah, yeah. I also think you know pocket is interesting because if you're doing groovy funk music like. I think there's a speed limit on it because you start to lose groove and pocket. It's just arbitrarily too fast. Like there's sure. a sweet spot, a tempo that like has a has a flow to it. So it's kind of like antithetical to just playing fast for for the sake of it. Totally. You're bringing up an interesting thing regarding the pocket in metal, the pocket in hard rock music. People don't always think of it as a genre that you need to be so concerned with pocket. Mm-hmm. But that is definitely not true. You have to be aware of the feel of the music. In your band, Do you is there a specific thing that you're going for right on the grid style pocket, pushing ahead, laying back? What What is your guys' approach to pocket in Animals as Leaders? That's a good question. So our drummer, Matt Garska, likes to actually perform his parts on the record, like with as little comping, as little editing as possible. He wants it to sound like a human performance. Yeah. So I haven't gotten granular with his pocket, but there absolutely is. He's either inclined to be a bit behind or he's inclined to... I I haven't actually, like, listened with that set of ears, but I know he listens in that way. Sure. Um, And so, yes, there is a consideration for pocket, but I'll just write a riff that feels good, like, sitting in this room and playing, but I'm not like, you know this would hit better if I slowed it down 10 BPM, mm. which I think is the thing I should start thinking about because the same musical phrase out of its like tempo sweet spot can feel maybe too urgent or feel a little tense. If you slow it down, it might all of a sudden like have a sense of relief or it might be more compelling. And I think you could do that with, you could do that with things that don't seem like dance music it don't seem like groove music i will say that there's this subgenre of metal that it, apparently we're supposed to be called gent yeah is like really a mashuga derived approach to playing metal do you know mashuga yeah of course okay cool i think they think about pocket yeah and i think they popularize a very moderate conspicuous quarter note thing where the china's playing like just drilling a quarter note China at like a fairly moderate tempo, but it, it sometimes slower tempos communicate 
size, which mm. is, I think, complementary to heaviness. Yeah. So I think metal does think about pocket, but like not as often as guys who are playing like funk and like dance music and, and like hip hop and R&B and stuff like that. Sure. What about the key and your tuning? Because to me, it just feels like, all right, I tune this sucker down and all of a sudden it's exponentially heavier. The more every half step is just this, it's just increasingly heavier. <laughs> Dude, yeah, it's funny. It started with, like, if you go to the thrash metal days and stuff, shit's all in, like, standard. And then you notice this arms race of, like, lower tunings, right? And then yeah. more strings. And, yeah, I mean, I'm playing a guitar that goes as low as, like, a standard bass. I think it's because um, the same way slower tempos can communicate a type of, like, heaviness, I think low notes, like, the waveforms are actually, like, more spread out. Like, and it has this um, effect of heaviness. It just yeah. seems, and so yeah, I think like metal never really looked back once people started detuning their guitars. It's just it really works for heaviness. I remember being so into Headfield, and then all of a sudden Monkey came along, and it just felt like, oh my gosh, how is what is happening? <laughs> <laughs> what I can't do this on my Strat. It's like, oh, seven strings. How is it what? Where did this come from? Yeah. And hearing it was almost strange. It's like yes. brain had to learn a new flavor or a new color. It was like, what's going on? You know what I mean? Yeah. I, remember, I remember that experience. And I remember when Meshuggah put out an album called Nothing. It was right when Ozfest was still there. It was probably 2002. I'll never forget this. This I downloaded it on Napster. And every once in a while on Napster, you would get a corrupt MP3 and it would sound weird. Yeah. I thought I, <laughs> I got <laughs> Like, like wrong sample rate slowed it down and pitched it down exactly and i was like you know they weren't playing chords they were doing these single note riffs like yeah note, sort of almost and i was like something's wrong with this mb3 is the wrong sample rate and then i'm like so i eventually found out they were on eight string guitars and i was like i it's it's very rare you have a new musical experience where you're like i've never heard this before yeah <laughs> especially involving your instrument you know it's like that doesn't happen super often, you know? It's like the first time eating Indian food ever or something. Yeah, you're like... What flavor is this? What is, where did curry come from? Yeah, but it's cool. It's like, and then you get into it, you know? I love that. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to talk, because you, you brought up eight-string guitars. You have been in the process of managing a guitar brand and coming out with your own guitar, which I think is so awesome. Thanks, man. Tell me about why you decided to do that rather than just have a signature guitar with an existing company. What have you learned from building your own guitar brand? I had a happy relationship with Ibanez. Like I, I did the signature guitar thing. I think I just, I remember feeling like, particularly with the extended range guitar, I remember feeling frustrated by just slapping more strings on an existing guitar shape and mm. without really approaching the eight string as a, a unique instrument that deserves to be considered from the ground up. Yeah. Um, so then I, I convinced Ibanez to let me incorporate ideas I had into a, an, an entirely original like body shape and, and scale length and all this stuff. And so we were doing that for a while, but Ibanez is such a large company. The timelines can be extremely long because they have to coordinate, I mean, with, you know, various factories and blah, blah, blah. They have a whole queue of other SKUs they're working on. And so it was a long process and I was like almost second guessing how much I wanted to refine it because I'm just like, for instance, any component you put on that instrument, you have to like four exit by the time it reaches the consumer. So that mini toggle switch you want, well, that's going to make the guitar more expensive by a lot or that push pull pot or well, you see what I'm saying, the locking tuner. So then I started feeling like, oh, well, in some ways this isn't coming out absolutely ideally or if i want it to be ideal there's always a cost so it started to become a perfect storm of just like you know is this the right context to do this like my aspirations seem to exceed just putting out a single guitar in galaxy black with eight strings and that's the only sure. one you can get i was like what if someone wants a freaking seven string or a six or they want it with different pickups or different color and i live in southern california and there are there are guitar builders here you know it's yeah. kind of the hub of a lot of great legendary brands. Sir's here, Tom Anderson's here, Grover Jackson's here. Um, so it's actually like became realistic that I could 
take my original design and just have it made in the United States. So we attempted a custom shop model that became too complex. There's a long trajectory of learning things the hard way in real time. Manufacturing is very complicated uh, for various reasons. <laughs> like lead times on various components coming from various parts of the, the country and various parts of the world. You know, wood is a dynamic material that is subject to moisture and temperature. And the particular consumers in my genre of guitar stuff are like extremely well, uh, let's say well educated and have a, a very high standard of, of, of quality. And so... And they're not afraid to share their opinions on such things. You are correct. <laughs> Lots of strong opinions. And it's cool. I love the community. It's my community. And I think like the consumers know what they want at this point. Information so readily available. So, you know, we're, we learned a lot of hard lessons in real time. And I think we finally you know, are getting to a sweet spot of like knowing preemptively how to do it as opposed to like learning on our feet. We have a lot of happy customers. And I'll tell you, like, you know, you and I both are we create music. Right. But like, it's interesting to like design an instrument for another player. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you like want it to go into the world and like have it be a tool for them to make music. The way you choose a guitar for yourself is like, you're looking for this right combination of specs and feel and blah, 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 and aesthetics. But it's cool to like push that past your personal taste and to say, hey, if you like this type of stuff, you can, you can get what I've designed, you know, I think this is one of the best guitars around. And it's a part of creativity that I didn't have before because I was just making sounds and making music. Yeah. yeah. So now I feel like a designer and I'm having to have like practical considerations and like, you know, I'm looking at industrial design, I'm looking at automotive design, I'm looking at ergonomics and I'm looking at graphic design. I'm looking at color palette and texture. And I'm like, it's just like a whole new part of my creative brain that used to just be for music, now it gets to be in this other way of creating. So super rewarding. I love that. And honestly, I feel like that comes across really strong, not only in your guitar, also in the in the design of your plugin. Like when I look at your plugin, look at your guitar, just the stuff that you do in general, it's got this Ferrari Italian sort of feel to it, as opposed to like my thing is much different. It's it's the the edges are different. The the color choices, all that stuff. It's really interesting to see. You definitely have a creative palette that comes across in the visual. That's good to know, yeah. And I'm glad you, you brought up the Ferrari thing because I feel like supercars are like this totally unnecessary thing that exists. You know, it's like <laughs> exceedingly expensive, arguably too fast to be legally utilized on any public road. <laughs> And it is just an arms race of performance and aerodynamics and lightweight materials. And like, it's literally this like pursuit in and of itself. And I, I kind of like that that exists, you know what I mean? Yeah. A lot of the shapes and branding approaches speak to me. And so I've tried to like kind of distill some of that stuff into the Abasi brand. Cause I, I think that stuff's cool, you know? All right, this is some good conversation. I got to remind you, though, have you guys not gone to that Neural DSP website yet? You got to go check it out. Use that 30% off coupon, Wong. That's my last name. And while you're there, check out the Archetype Corey Wong plugin. I guarantee you, if you are looking for good, clean, or edge of breakup tones, this is the plugin for you. There's three different amps, a pedal board, EQ, three different cabs. Come on! You can use it live. You can use it in the studio. There's that 14-day free trial. Check out all the plugins and let me know which one's your favorite. We talked a little bit about your growth and how to track growth through your actual playing on the instrument. For you, how have you been able to track your artistry? Are there any checkpoints for you that you've gone through or that you're going towards in artistry? I think there are a few ways you can check to see the impact of your artistry. Obviously, when we write something, we're trying to like put an idea into like music, right? And it goes out and it's listened to by people. And then sometimes you get feedback that they actually get what you were trying to put out, right? Yeah. And so to me, that's the most like foundational experience of like confirmation that you're on like a path. 
if you feel a feedback loop with a listener and they're like, dude, that's so funky or dude, that's so heavy or dude, I love that song. You're kind of like, okay, cool. I wanted it to be that. And I'm really yeah. happy that that's happening. And then there's a second tier dynamic to that to where the more people who are doing that, the more convinced you are that you're like either sure. communicating <laughs> your ideas or whatever the case is. Yeah. Um, then the third tier is other musicians who you respect or just other musicians in general being like, dude, I like what you're up to. Cause then you're like, Oh, cool. This chef likes my, my cooking. And yeah. he knows how to cook. <laughs> so that's cool. And then I think internally, I don't know if you have this experience, but like, do you feel like it's impossible to like your own songs as much as you like just some other person's, whether it's another band or whatever, merely because it came from a different mind. And like, you can never love your own stuff as much as you love like your favorite other, you know what I'm saying? I know exactly what you're saying. I, I think for me, it's more in the listening to my own guitar playing. Nobody hears me play my riffs and my style as much as me because anytime I do it, I hear it. Right. So I think we naturally are a little more numb to our own playing and our own songwriting. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, it's kind of like this weird like curse, but I guess the other part of it is like the vision you have for yourself as a player. So we all have heroes. I guess we all have an idea of the type of player we want to be. So I think for me, like measuring where I'm going relates to like the ideal Tosin in my brain that like can do things that the current Tosin can't do. It doesn't have to be crazy technical. It could just be like, I've seen pianists get on a piano and without much thought, just stream beautiful music, just stream of consciousness. I've seen guitar players who have developed foundational approaches to playing to where they can just play without any premeditation. And, and it's kind of just like, it's gorgeous. A lot of jazz players are like this, you know? Yeah. It's a type of fluency. It's like we've studied language so that we can communicate without a lot of, like, I didn't have to write down all my words before I got on the Zoom with you, right? I'm yeah. able to access, like, so I feel like I spent a lot of my guitar career composing and committing notes exactly to where they go and making this sort of complex compositional type of music. And now I'm really envious of guys who, They'll do five takes of a solo, and it's just a matter of which one you like best. But it's not a matter of any of them being necessarily worse, because anytime they play, it's killer. You just yeah. take the third comp, fine. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I just want to be an old dude who like can just pick up a guitar and beautiful music happens. And it's it just seems like a state of mind I would really like to, I don't know. So that's kind of where like that if I get to that point, I will feel that I've like kind of I don't know, achieve the type of mastery or something. Well, you've clearly gotten the attention of heroes by being a part of G4 and Generation Axe. Yeah. You know, that sort of stuff. So it sounds to me like you're you're achieving the part of it where you need your heroes or the other chefs to, to approve you more so than your own self. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess that's part of the game. And, and that actually in some ways is maybe a good thing and why it keeps cats like you and I eternal students because we're always striving to be better we always we know there's something deep inside of us there's more that can come out which is amazing it, it's amazing to feel like there's a inexhaustible amount of potential in you and like you can you can feel good about what you've done so far and still be hungry for like you feel there's more you've got more to bring you, yeah. you know what I mean? I think that student mind state is definitely the other part of it that makes it like, I think that is the fuel. If you want to play guitar for the rest of your life, if you can keep a, a student-like mentality, you will never tire of the instrument because there's always new stuff to learn and inspire you. Yeah. Speaking of the G4 and Generation Axe things, mm -hmm. you're playing with some heavy cats, some incredible players. And, and you yourself as well, it goes without saying, everybody's got such a unique, different thing that they bring to the table. When you came into those situations, how did you approach how you fit into that? It was intimidating. The first rehearsal was the first time I'm meeting Ingve and Zach and Nuno. You know, dude, I remember these guys being on the cover of Guitar World magazine and all this stuff. Like, while well, I'm in middle school and high school. Yeah. Zach's on there larger than life with his Les Paul. Like... It's literally like, 
oh my God, it's you in real life. You are exactly <laughs> like <laughs> the personalities these guys have over the like larger than life personalities. Every one of them. It's just like the guitar playing is almost secondary or only makes sense because of how much, how strong of individuals these people are. Sure. So I was intimidated and my only sense of validity, I guess, was that like, I was asked to be there and that I was like doing a thing that's in its own lane. And so the way it's packaged is that we all kind of have a distinct voice and then we come together at various points in the show and do these ensembles. But yeah, it was kind of like, if I'm being honest, the whole tour, I still felt like I'm like the meet and greet kid kind of who got to like hang out a lot longer. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome hearing all these tour stories i'm just listening you know i'm just hearing all these cool stories and all this stuff and i just like it never wore off i'm like i it's just crazy that i'm here it's crazy that i'm hanging out with these guys um and even though i'm sharing the stage i still defer to them in a way yeah. of like you guys are the, the dudes you know what i mean that's awesome i feel like someday i'm going to meet ingbe momstein and my interaction is going to be like at a rehearsal there'll be some guitar jam I'm going to walk up, plug in my Strat, like directly into a twin. He's going to say, what blood type are you? Harmonic minor blues in E. Go. I'm just feel, oh, oh, what? Oh. I just feel like that's, it's, I, I, I feel, I can only imagine what that must be like showing up to rehearsals. And I remember seeing videos of him as a kid. It's like, what, is he drinking a vial of blood on stage? And he's just shredding harmonic how is he this dude is insane and he's just ripping you want to talk about effortlessness that guy has always scared me yeah no he 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 is effortless and i think he's replaced the blood with red bull um actually right before he hits (laughs) stage what's cool about ingbe is he hasn't changed his approach like his gears is like the the marshals he's running and the way he's deriving his tone he's diming those things are I mean, they're so loud and he's got this whole, you know, master channel amp approach to where he doesn't want like preamp distortion. He wants kind of like a, a, a single channel clean head working its ass off, you know, and yeah, it produces this really clear transient attack. Mm. His rig, yeah, it cuts in a way that, you know, is representative of like how he's driving the amplifier. And, you know, look, I think as a strap player, if, if this scenario you cre- you created where you plug into a twin, <laughs> God, I'm interested with the strap for sure. That is true. That's true. We are breath. We're Stratocaster brethren. Yeah. He's uh, one of the more impactful players to me because hearing classical, this harmonic minor thing, I think my brain as a younger guitar player was like classical has such stepwise motion as far as the phrasing is concerned. It's very scalar. There's not a lot of intervallic leaps. And it obviously like reminds us of, of so when Inde plays, part of my brain's hearing like Baroque classical music, but it's also hearing a Marshall stack and a Stratocaster yeah. and insane speed. And I remember as a kid combining those two things, I was like, I was just mesmerized by it. It was different than hearing a sick blues player. It was different than hearing a jazz player because it was like classical music through a, a Marshall stack at like warp neck speed. And I was just like amazed. And I and it's a Stratocaster too. It's a Strat and it sounds glorious. It's just yeah. like, yeah. So Yngwie had a huge impact on just like the amount of years I spent alternate picking, trying wow. to play that fast. And I would credit him with creating that sort of neoclassical genre. Yeah, And you mentioned effortlessness and the clarity. He, I feel like there's a, a bar definitely got raised when it's just blistering speed, super clean with this classical harmony. And I, the guitar world is never the same after that, you know? Yeah, yeah. that's cool. I can't yeah. believe he's still touring with those Marshall stacks like that. That's amazing. I when mean, I, rightfully so. If anybody should be doing that, it's him, right? Yeah. He knows exactly what he wants. It's like not an Axe Effects. Yeah. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> he approached the tone since the once he nailed that sound, he just that is what you're gonna get. I think yeah. I really respect that because the sonic result, you don't. You, I wouldn't change a thing, you know. And Does your front of house engineer let you blare an amp on stage or no? No, dude, no. Nobody does these days. I can't get away with. I have literally. I promise you this. This is not a lie. I have never played through a Marshall stack in my life. Really. 
I'm missing out. I, I feel wow. like I feel like I just I have to. I mean, I could go to a guitar center and change that right now, but I'd piss off a lot of people. I, I've never played through a Marshall stack. I've never even been able to dime a half stack in my life. Nobody lets me do that. Yeah, and, I, and in some ways, it seems like an insane thing to do. Those amps are very loud. Oh yeah. Yeah, like I feel you. I'd, I there's a YouTube clip online. There's guys like Pete Thorne and various dudes who are playing through. I think like a '59 Plexi dimed. And the whole thing is like, what do you play when you plug into a, a stack at, on 10? Yes. Physically, you have to actually play in a way that accounts for how loud it is. It's like psychologically like riding a rocket. It's like crazy. So like, it's an old school thing that I feel, feel is being lost because of like inner monitors and like, you know, <laughs> going direct. <laughs> totally. My hands, Corey, because of <laughs> You and I are ruining Marshall stacks forever. <laughs> We're saying you don't need them. You just need ones and zeros. No, but um, you got to get out and do that. Just go to some cool store that's got a, a loud room and just plug in, dude. It's yeah, it's it's funny. I don't know anybody now. I run. I don't need to run my amps really loud because I actually like things really clean. Mm -hmm. So I normally run a twin reverb on two or mm -hmm. three. Yeah. You know, so. I, I inherently in my sound don't need an amp to be really loud, but sometimes I'll put it up to four just to see if I can get away with it. Mm. And I'm all like, hey, turn it down. Like, dude, we're at the Greek. You know, yeah. it's like, this yeah. thing is, this, there's 7,000 people here. You're telling me like, what were people doing the last 30 years in this venue? They were figuring it out and they were cranking that sucker. But I do respect having a little more control over the sound. And yeah, I don't need to be super loud. So I, I, I don't, I'm not a stickler about turning up. You're too reasonable. I guess so. I feel like there are some artists who hire front of house dudes who are not going to tell them to turn down. It's like, yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like an inverted thing where it's like, no, you figure it out. This is how loud the amp is. I think you and I are just like, we understand the end result probably benefits from all elements being extremely controlled, you know? Yeah. It's not the most rock and roll thing in the world, but it produces the best end result, you know? Totally. Yeah. And, and that's why we hire a front of us is, look, you're paying me to give a great sound out front. If that's what you want, if you want me to do what you're paying me to do, turn down your amp and I'll give you a great sound out front. Okay. That's fine. I get it. I respect that. Totally. Yeah. Are you on in-ears live or do you just you do listen to the room? I have been on in-ears when I tour. When I go out and do festivals and stuff, I just throw and go and that's fine. But we've been on in-ears the last couple of years. It's a gnarly mix, man. You get a lot, a lot of uh, channels, a lot of members. It's like, that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's cool though. The thing is a lot of times people switching off between instruments, then like some somebody hits the keyboards a lot harder than somebody else, you oh, know, or wow. like... Woody plays the B3 a lot quieter than the way that Joey or Jack does. So then there's there's level changes there. But I think it's just figuring out how to compromise all of that. And we got a good crew. They, they, yeah. they look after us. That's cool, man. Remember touring? <laughs> I do remember touring. Yeah, sometimes I have to watch videos to see what it feels like to have an audience there. Yeah. I never imagined this particular scenario where like, no one can like perform in front of a crowd of people for a period of time. I never imagined this. Have you guys done any of the streaming stuff or any of that? We did one in the beginning of COVID where like everyone seemed to be kind of like scrambling to figure out to pivot in like real time. Like we didn't yeah. know how long it lasts. We everyone's rescheduling tours. Like so, look, we we did a thing with Billboard. Um, it was cool, but. It's not the same. And yeah, because I think being on stage with a, a bunch of people feels like interactive and there's a feedback loop and just, you know, putting something on the Internet is a little different. So I haven't been that inspired necessarily by like the full band performances. I would say like if we were more improvisational, then it's like, cool, every time we perform, you're going to get different versions of the songs and that's worth something. Yeah. But we're not doing a bunch of online concerts. It's just kind of like. I think we're going to focus on the album and try to get back on stage as soon as we're, we're able, as, as soon as anyone's able to. Yeah. I have one last concept I want to talk to you about. Mm -hmm. one last, it's kind of a two-part thing. When you're writing music that's instrumental, 
understanding that the general public, and again, I'm generalizing here, but in, in general, the general public, it, it takes a lot more effort to listen to instrumental music. What have you guys done to keep instrumental music, the music that you guys are doing, interesting with longer forms and with a lot of stuff going on, or you're just playing what you want to play and you're not even caring about that? It's kind of the latter. I'm often playing what I want to play and then trying to refine it to the point as a body of music to be impactful to a listener. So how long does something repeat? Um, can we change the second time this section comes by doing something with accents or doing it halftime? You make all these this, these sort of decisions to mold the song into something that's more compelling. But um, instrumental music is interesting because, yeah, I think a lot of people don't gravitate towards it. They're waiting for a human voice or lyrics it's, it's kind of, it centers the song, it anchors the song in verses and choruses. And like, I think the human brain responds to human voices very differently than it does to like a distorted guitar. So I consciously knew that it wouldn't be for everyone, but like, I felt like that's where my value is. It's like, I'm not Tom York. I'm not gonna be writing a, like really cool songs while I'm singing. I, I'm, a, I'm a guitar nerd who wants to really explore the far reaches of yeah. guitar. <laughs> and I think there are other nerds out there. And so I'm like, I would, I'm happy when people make very specific guitar music for my consumption. Yeah, It has inspired me. And so I, I try to make the same type of offering. And I think it's compelling to primarily to other musicians so we're not afraid of musical complexity or long song forms or unconventional song forms. And I think the ways in which we might try to hook people are the same ways in which any songwriter would. So I think groove can be super compelling and obviously melody can be super compelling. We sometimes consciously turn on those elements in order to enroll people, but it's a pretty pretty like masturbatory self-indulgent approach to writing in general that we have. I love that. And that feels to me like what you're doing translates into honest art because mm. it's what you're catering to the fan base. That's basically also you, right? We you are know, one. like the, yeah, <laughs> stuff that you're going to want to listen to also. So I think that's really cool. And I, I, I recognize that in, in listening to your music, that it feels really honest and it, it's awesome. I love what you guys are doing. Thanks, man. I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. Mutual appreciation going on here. Thanks, man. Yeah. Well, Tosin, thanks so much for joining us today. Is there anything else? You guys said you're, you're working on a new album right now. When Anything that you want to leave us with? What, what can we expect? Le give us a cliffhanger. Huh. Animals as Leaders is working with Misha Mansur of Periphery on production, and we have some really cool songs already written and recorded, and I think the timeline is like early next year, you'll start getting singles. So yeah, it's been a long time and we're excited to just show people what we've been up to. Awesome. I'm excited to hear it. Thanks so much for joining us and uh, hopefully we'll see each other in person sometime. Yeah, man. Post COVID. There you have it. If you're not familiar with Tosin, get hip and check out Abasi Concepts. Amazing guitars. Seriously, they are beautiful. This was going to be the last episode of the season, but I decided, wait a minute. I need to interview Luke, Steve Lukather. He's going to be with us next week. Great interview. I actually just did the interview. So, you know, it's we do these things ahead of time. These aren't live because it's a podcast. So we'll see you next time. Peace.